Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Folks, this is the sort of broadcast I hope I'd never have to put on the air. But friends, I've done the research. I've got the evidence right here. We've talked to eyewitnesses and experts the mainstream media would never bother with. And when you put it all together, there's no question about it. We are under attack. Now I know you goddamn globalists, you blood eaters, you demons, you international invaders with your George Soros and your Snopes and your supposed fact checkers will say, oh, Alex is so crazy. He thinks everything is a conspiracy. Well, guess what? It is. It's a false flag conspiracy to take our guns, just like Hitler, just like Stalin, just like Fidel Castro down there in Cuba. So you can think I'm crazy. You people make me sick. You live in a fantasy, delusional world. You watch your TV. You ignore the terrible reality. You ignore the facts that I bring you. You don't understand that your TV is watching you. That computers are going to decide if you live or die. That they're putting chemicals in the water that turn the friggin' frogs gay. And all of these mind-controlled false flag patsies, these zombies shooting people on the orders of the demon globalists are clearing the way. They want to convince you that you're in danger so they can take away your guns. Well, I'm not going to stand for it, you scum. I'm red-blooded. Your plan won't work on me. I'm not a slave. I've broken the conditioning. It doesn't work on me. I'm primitive. I'm real. Wake up. It's a war. They're selling baby parts. It's all a false flag. Hi, everybody. I know that usually I take on the persona of some lunatic in the introduction and parrot their nonsense before undercutting that very point, but this time we have to take on the pile of rancid fucking garbage you just heard an impression of, Alex Jones, and I simply don't have the lungs for it, so I had to call in the big guns. Thanks a million to Mike Schmidt of the 40-Year-Old Boy podcast for that remarkable impression. So strap in and let's take this shitbird down a peg or two. It's time for the Paranoid Strain. Welcome to the seventh episode of The Paranoid Strain, a show where we try our best to explain the motivations and misunderstandings behind the conspiracy theories that subtly influence the globe, our nation, YouTube, and your grandpa. I am your host, Fearful Jesuit. No, that's not my real name. I am a man of mystery. If this is your first time joining us, welcome to the party. Our previous episodes have dealt with everything from anti-Semitic books to fringe militias to mysterious imaginary chemical clouds in the air above us. We invite you to dip into the archives and immerse yourself in the weirdness. 
We also invite you to drop us a line and let us know what you think of the show. You can find us at Paranoid Strain on Twitter, theparanoidstrain at gmail.com for email, or our home on the web at theparanoidstrain.com. We've also got a home on Facebook. Just look up The Paranoid Strain and we'll get you all signed up. Send us a voicemail and we'll more than likely feature your question or comment on the show in your very own voice. This time, our topic is false flags. Just like our previous examination of chemtrails, these represent a confluence of real-world phenomena and total whack-jobbery. The real thing in this case is the usually military concept of pretending to be someone or something you're not in order to sow chaos or confusion among your enemies. The fake thing is the idea that any time any horrible event happens that doesn't comport with your personal worldview, it can definitively be blamed on your political or ideological opponents. A quick word of warning. Because he's so incredibly important to understanding the modern obsession with false flags, we're going to have to hear from Alex Jones throughout this episode. We are well aware that exposure to Jones' voice can cause blindness, impotence, sterility, scabies, dropsy, cotard's delusion, otago mystery disease, and micropenis. Listener discretion is advised. So, let's catch up on how the divergent concepts behind real-life and fake false flags came to be represented by the same term, with a digression into the past. So what the hell is a false flag? I mean, the real kind. I'm so glad you asked. I mean, technically you asked because I wrote out that line in the script and asked you to read it, but still, I'm so glad. As we alluded to earlier, the idea of false flags has a long history, and it's been used to describe a wide variety of real-world phenomena. The tactic gets its name from naval combat, especially as practiced by pirates and their close brethren, privateers. Defined as pirates who cut a local king or queen in on the vig who at some point in their swashbuckling exploits got the bright idea that, rather than flying the skull and crossbones as you crested the horizon, giving your prey a chance to prepare, it was much easier to wave the flags of any friendly or neutral country as you approach a nice fat target, and then hoist the Jolly Roger, Union Jack, or other freak flag right before Captain Johnny Depp called for the first fusillade. Incidentally, the real flag they hoisted before the attack is known as their true colors. Which, as we know, are beautiful... Like a rainbow. These days, the general definition is something like this. A false flag is any scenario where Group A, seeking to make Group B look bad, dresses up or otherwise impersonates Group B and does something horrendous. Then, the leadership of Group A makes loud noises about how horrible the action is and how it demonstrates that Group B are real assholes. And that therefore we should arrest, bomb, invade, conquer, or otherwise suppress those nefarious Group B motherfuckers. It's easy to see why false flag operations, as defined above, would be tempting for many a government or military facing unrest at home. Sure, we suck, but look how terrible these other guys are. Properly executed, a false flag could gin up unwarranted support for an unpopular government, a wrong-headed policy, or an ethnic hatred. So let's take a tour through some of the great false flags of history. Incidentally, while one might think at first blush that the legendary Trojan horse would be our starting point, 
It's not really a false flag in the classic sense. It's certainly a military deception, but the Greeks never pretended to be Trojans in this operation. They pretended to be gone. Now, if they had put a flag on the horse, blamed the whole sneak attack on the Spartans, then you'd have yourself a false flag. And a pretty rad-looking horse. Over the next couple dozen centuries, there were a bunch of incidents where an army dressed up as their enemies and did some dastardly shit or another, especially in Europe, where a strict round-robin system required each fiefdom to start a new conflict twice a year or risk losing their draft picks next season. But because most of you probably weren't history majors, and therefore glaze over whenever anyone starts waxing rhapsodic about 18th century Russo-Swedish military feints, we're going to skip forward to a big ol' uniquely American 19th century false flag that you've probably never heard of, the Mountain Meadows Massacre. These days, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, also known as the Mormons, are about as American and unthreatening as, well, as former presidential candidate and current 2% milk impersonator Mitt Romney. But there was a time when the Mormons held a similar place in the fevered imaginations of fearful Americans that Muslims play today. The fact that these religious weirdos, those fearful Americans' thoughts, not ours, believed in multiple wives, that Jesus came to the Americas after coming back to life in the Middle East, etc., etc., didn't help. And neither did the fact that the Mormons seemed no more interested in peaceful coexistence with their neighbors than the rest of America was with them. This had led the Mormons, after a series of persecutions that drove them gradually west, to move to the Utah Territory, where their sheer numbers made them the de facto governing majority. Still, the threat that the U.S. government, in its relentless expansion westward, might send the army to subdue those they still saw as dangerous cultists, kept Mormon leaders on their toes. In addition, a wave of religious fervor had led many to believe that in order to expiate the sins of those who wouldn't accept Joseph Smith's teachings, essentially all non-Mormon white Americans, whom they referred to as the Gentiles, it might be necessary to shed their blood. This was not a great combination of factors and helps to explain the situation that befell the Fancher wagon train after it continued west from a brief stop in Salt Lake City. What happened, as detailed in John Krakauer's truly superlative history Under the Banner of Heaven, was that the Fancher group was attacked by what initially seemed like a raiding party of the native Paiute people. And in fact, it was a group of Paiutes, but they had been encouraged, armed, and joined by a group of the Mormon territorial militia known as the Nauvoo Legion. The white guys painted themselves up to look like natives to blend in, to boost against cultural appropriation and massacring wagon trains for that matter, being rather different then than nowadays. Krakauer notes that precisely how high the approval for this raid went in the Mormon hierarchy is still in question. Raid leader John D. Lee stated he received his orders from the mayor of Cedar City, but Lee also believed that those orders came from higher up the food chain, from General George A. Smith, a cousin of the religion's martyred founder, or even Brigham Young, the second prophet himself. Regardless, on September 7, 1857, the Mormons and their Paiute pals attacked the Fancher party. The Fanchers fought back, leading to a stalemate that obtained over several days until the Mormons sent an emissary to tell the wagon train's members that they had convinced the natives to give them safe passage away from the battle. These were, of course, the same folks who had been pretending to be natives to attack them in the first place. And then, glossing over a great deal of horror, the attackers slaughtered over 120 unarmed members of the Fancher party, men, women, and children, leaving only those kids under the age of five who presumably wouldn't remember enough to report on what the Mormon attackers had done. When it was all over and the dead were half-heartedly buried, Krakauer relates Lee's recollection. Then the overseers of the massacre reiterated the necessity of always saying the Indians did it alone and that the Mormons had nothing to do with it. It was voted unanimously that any man who should divulge the secret or tell who was present or do anything that would lead to a discovery of the truth should suffer death. Obviously, that little Omerta pledge didn't quite work out. 
The fact that you're hearing about it now means that keeping their little false flag, it was Indians, not us, massacre secret, wasn't as easy as the perpetrators hoped. But it does a lot to demonstrate why the idea of executing a proper false flag would be tempting. If it had worked, they would have killed a number of their perceived enemies, stolen their possessions, and glorified God as they saw him, all without that evil Gentile government being any the wiser. After all, it's not like the U.S. Army wasn't eager to go after marauding Native Americans. We'll get back to some more all-American false flags in a moment, but let's first take a detour into the early 20th century's greatest false flag hits. Japan. We all know about Pearl Harbor, which wasn't so much a false flag as a really effective sneak attack that, four years later, had become the world's most slow-motion own goal. But less well-known among Western audiences is the far more horrific campaign Imperial Japan launched against China in the 1930s. If you've ever heard the term, the Rape of Nanking, you should know that the description is both accurate and totally inadequate to describe the horror that the Japanese inflicted on the occupied Chinese. Early in this process, when the Imperial Army were seeking to expand outward from the Korean Peninsula, which they had already conquered, they executed an operation where a Japanese military officer planted dynamite on a span of railroad track and blew it up. The resulting explosion was so weak it didn't even temporarily interrupt rail travel, but it served as pretext for war once the Japanese blamed the bombing on Chinese dissidents. The Japanese took control over Manchuria and held it until 1945. By which point, losing Chinese holdings were kind of the least of their problems. Next, the Soviets. The artists, both formerly and currently known as Russia, launched their own false flag in the tumultuous year of 1939. When all eyes were focused, understandably, on Germany, the Reds used the opportunity to stage a false flag operation against tiny neighboring Finland. The Soviets had signed a number of official documents declaring that they wouldn't menace their itty-bitty neighbor, but Stalin had another idea. That idea was, and I quote, in the end, seven artillery shots were mysteriously fired less than a kilometer into Soviet territory. The Soviets declared the non-aggression pacts null and void and initiated what came to be known as the Winter War. Embarrassingly, the Red Army, in spite of overwhelming advantages, had real difficulty overcoming the Finns. This may have had something to do with the fact that Uncle Joe had killed off tens of thousands of army officers in the preceding decade because they had betrayed the revolution, grown a mustache that upstaged Uncle Joe's, etc. The Great Power rallied and eventually the Finns had to give up a bunch of territory. But nobody remembers this one because at around the same time, the big dog of assholery started barking. Germany. So look, false flag attacks are kind of the also-ran of German crimes in World War II, but they're still worth noting. The one everyone has heard about, i.e. the Reichstag fire, is actually still a point of contention among responsible historians. To recap, right after Hitler became chancellor in 1933, the Reichstag, or German parliament, went up in flames. The ruling Nazi party quickly caught a communist named Marinus van der Lubbe, who, according both to them and to van der Lubbe himself, was solely responsible for setting the conflagration. He was tried and executed for the crime. So, case closed, right? Well, not exactly. There's still legitimate argument among historians about whether or not this was a genuine lone wolf case. But what seems clear at this point is that it probably wasn't really part of some Nazi false flag master plan. On the other hand, a rather underreported story that the Nazis staged as a pretext for the invasion of Poland in 1939 is a textbook case of false flag skullduggery. Hitler, by that year, was frothing at the mouth to invade Poland. I mean, he was frothing at the mouth for any number of reasons, but those Polish meanies kept refusing to give him any sort of reasonable pretext for going to war. Even your most florid, deranged, spittle-flake dictators prefer some sort of fig leaf to cover their bloodthirstiness, don't you know? 
Never one to let the total lack of a genuine threat from his perceived enemies slow down a good mass slaughter, Hitler simply ignored reality and asserted with no evidence that Polish attacks on ethnic Germans in their country were thick on the ground. These baseless assertions, coming as they did from a deranged little man sporting a mustache that looked like his nose shit itself, apparently didn't have the desired effect, so the Nazis ginned up a clandestine operation to get the war going. Dubbed Operation Himmler, it consisted of a series of sabotage maneuvers, the crowning jewel of which was the Glavitz Incident. On August 1st, 1939, seven SS officers disguised as Polish soldiers assaulted a radio station four miles on the German side of the border with Poland. As noted by Bob Graham in his article for The Telegraph on the 70th anniversary of the incident, they brought with them one... Francis Ek Honjuk, a 43-year-old unmarried Catholic farmer. He had been arrested by the SS in the village of Polomia on August 30 and ruthlessly selected as the person who would provide the proof of Polish aggression against Germany. The Germans then, quote, took over the radio station and broadcast a few broken words in Polish announcing that, in fact, the Polish army had taken it over. Their mission accomplished, there was only one thing left to do. Before the SS team left, they shot Honjuk through the forehead and left his body, dressed in a Polish army uniform they had previously stolen, draped across the entrance steps. As the title of Graham's article suggests, many have seen Honjuk as World War II's first victim. What's certain is that he was the victim of its first false flag operation. There are, of course, still fringe groups who insist that Pearl Harbor was at least a semi-false flag. In this telling, FDR deliberately provoked Japan through economic sanctions and other means, and then left the Navy defenseless to gin up support for entering the war after the Japanese made their inevitable attack. But the support for this is weak at best. But the real history of deliberate, conscious, fully documented American false flags begins in earnest with the Cold War. The surprising thing is that, as fucked up as the first half of the 20th century was, false flag-wise, it doesn't hold a candle to the skullduggery that happened once the U.S. and Russia emerged as the post-war's only remaining superpowers, eyeing each other's every act with suspicion and with the constant fear that open hostilities would lead inevitably to nuclear conflict. Both sides turned to proxy wars and clandestine operations as the best means to achieve their geopolitical aims. We'll come back to a truly horrific modern false flag operation that may have been perpetrated by Vladimir Putin's Russia a little later, but since this show is aimed at explaining why so many in the West generally, and the US particularly, think every third news story is a false flag, we're going to focus on the actions of the US during the Cold War and see how they paved the way for public cynicism about our government and its clandestine service, the CIA. from the ashes of the World War II-era intelligence service known as the OSS, the CIA played a singular role in U.S. foreign policy, from its founding to the present day. And a lot of that role was deeply, deeply awful, as lovingly detailed in the truly excellent history of the agency, Legacy of Ashes by Tim Weiner. In case the title isn't a complete giveaway, Weiner has a rather scornful view of the agency's accomplishments over the past seven-plus decades. In fact, this is how he opens the book. Legacy of Ashes is a record of the first 60 years of the Central Intelligence Agency. It describes how the most powerful country in the history of Western civilization has failed to create a first-rate spy service. That failure constitutes a danger to the national security of the United States. His book is an invaluable chronicle of all of the amazing ways that the agency went off the rails over the years, 
So I'm pleased to present our interview with... Wait, Mr. Wiener said no, didn't he? Yes, we're sorry to say. Well, shit. But not to worry. Turns out we have an even more betterer interviewee. Someone whose knowledge of the CIA's dirty Cold War tricks is so deep and the information he has to share is so explosive, he asked us to mask his voice to cover his identity. Though weirdly, he's perfectly comfortable with us using his real name, which is Luff Reef Tayusedge. And if you'll just give us a second, he'll be ready to go. Excuse me. <clears throat> Excuse me. Isn't that Luffreef, whatever name you just said, simply fearful Jesuit spelled backwards? Yep. Funny how these things work out sometimes, isn't it? Christ. Well, get on with it. Thanks. With no further ado, then, let's get into our interview. Luffreef, are you there? Yes. Thanks so much for having me on the show, Fearful. You're truly a podcasting legend, a brilliant man, and from what I hear, an incredible lover. Oh, stop. You'll make me blush. I just call him like I see him. Okay, okay. Let's get into the subject at hand. First of all, how and when did the CIA form? The Central Intelligence Agency formed in 1949, a peacetime, or at least Cold Wartime, intelligence agency that grew from the ashes of the Office of Strategic Services, or OSS, which had been led by a legendary general named William Donovan, also known as Wild Bill by both his friends and detractors. Donovan was widely regarded as, if not crazy, then certainly reckless, and as Wiener notes, Very few generals and admirals trusted him. They were appalled by his idea of making a spy service out of a scattershot collection of Wall Street brokers, Ivy League eggheads, soldiers of fortune, admin, newsmen, stuntmen, second storymen, and conmen. Well... How did this group contribute to the war effort? That's a little hard to pin down. Richard Helms, who eventually led the CIA, gave Donovan's OSS at best a mixed report, noting that some of the agency's activity distracted the Germans, but it was not a howling success. Still, after the war and Donovan's return to private life, it was clear that the United States was going to need a full-time agency that was devoted to collecting and analyzing all available foreign intelligence and providing a regular update to the president. But if that was all that it did, we wouldn't be talking about it now, right? Well, exactly. The folks who headed up the early CIA weren't interested in simply delivering information. They thought the proper role for the agency was a combination of intelligence gathering and direct action. In other words, Donovan's wild ways were still a part of the DNA of the CIA. But the CIA couldn't just go off half-cocked on any ridiculous idea it came up with. It was still accountable to the powers that be, right? Mm, not really. The CIA Act was rammed through Congress on May 27, 1949. With its passage, Congress gave the agency the widest conceivable powers. The CIA was barred only from behaving like a secret police force inside the United States. The Act gave the agency the ability to do almost anything it wanted, as long as Congress provided the money in an annual package. Holy shit! So as long as they weren't acting within the U.S. and they stayed within budget, they could basically do anything they wanted? Yep. And they did. For example, by 1953, they had engineered the overthrow of the democratically elected leader of Iran, imposing in his place dictatorial rule by the Shah, or King. As I recall, that ended up kind of biting us in the ass in the late 1970s. And in 1954, the CIA's efforts over several years led to the overthrow of another popularly elected leader, once again replaced by a repressive dictator. In both cases, the rationale was that the elected governments were trending towards socialism, i.e. communism, threatening to nationalize various industries that U.S. companies had an interest in, etc. Jesus. Yeah, and that's not all. There were also the secret experiments. The what? Yeah. 
The CIA was super into the idea of somehow guaranteeing that double agents who were working for them would stay loyal, and they didn't give a fuck what they had to do to accomplish that. As Wiener relates, The CIA's Office of Security had refitted a complex of cinderblock prison cells inside a Navy brig normally used to house drunk and disorderly sailors. In those cells, the agency was conducting secret experiments in harsh interrogation, using techniques on the edge of torture, drug-induced mind control, and brainwashing. In 1952, the Secretary of State and CIA leadership received the report on Project Artichoke, spelling out the agency's four-year effort to test heroin, amphetamines, sleeping pills, the newly discovered LSD, and other special techniques of CIA interrogations. A few months later, Dulles approved an ambitious new program codenamed ULTRA. Under its auspices, seven prisoners at a federal penitentiary in Kentucky were kept high on LSD for 77 consecutive days. When the CIA slipped the same drug to an Army civilian employee, Frank Olson, he leapt out of the window of a New York hotel. Christ! Yeah, this stuff all came out in the 70s due to some really great reporting by Seymour Hersh and because of the Church Commission, which was set up to get to the bottom of all sorts of CIA nonsense. And we haven't even gotten to Operation Northwoods. Wait, what was Operation Northwoods? Oh, just a CIA conspiracy theorist. Holy goddamn grail, that's all. So to briefly interrupt the interview here, this is one of those cases where you've just got to give it to the conspiracy theorists. In fact, it's damn difficult to find a Project Northwoods-related video on YouTube that isn't created by some conspiracy theorist doing a victory lap while quoting directly from the documents. We're going to let respected author James Bamford walk you through the awful details. The idea was to create a pretext to show that the, uh, there, there was an attack by uh, Cuba on the United States, and the idea was to have uh, uh, U.S. personnel from the CIA and other places secretly create terrorism in the United States. The documents actually said people would be shot on American streets, bombs would be blown up. And again, all this, the evidence would be uh, laid to point the finger at Castro. One other idea was they were going to, they had a very complex plan where they were going to take an aircraft and load it with CIA people look, look like college students, fly it over to have it take off from an airport in Miami with a lot of publicity. And then um, it would quickly, after it got into the air, land at a secret uh, CIA base. At that same time, an identical plane would take off from that CIA base, except this plane would be empty. And uh, it'd be remotely piloted from the ground. It was a drone plane that would be very similar to the passenger plane that had just taken off. And once the uh, plane was over Cuba, there was uh, going to be a tape recorder that would have played a, a distress call into a microphone saying help were being shot at. And a few minutes later, once the plane was over the Caribbean Sea after it passed over Cuba, somebody would have pressed a button on the ground, blowing up the plane, and uh, they would have blamed Cuba for killing a plane load of American college students. John Glenn was going to uh, go into his first space mission around that same time. And part of the plan was that if Glenn's uh, rocket accidentally blew up on liftoff, they were going to plant evidence uh, making it look like that it was Cuban sabotage that uh, that blew it up. These were all outrageous uh, plans. Uh, they, they made their way all the way up to Secretary of Defense uh, McNamara. Actually, the, the plans were all signed by uh, all members of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and then they went up to McNamara, and McNamara rejected the plan, um, and that was the end of it. So it, uh, it never got put into effect, but the fact that you can get all the members of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the senior military officials in the U.S. government, signing off on a plan that outrageous is extraordinary to me. Seriously, this document really happened. 
And while it didn't originate with the CIA, it actually came from the Department of Defense, the plans called for the CIA to do the dirty work. It's important to remember at this point that these plans were never even close to being enacted. They were a series of proposals that were definitively shot down and shelved by the Kennedy administration before being revealed in 1997 as, ironically, part of a document release related to the JFK assassination. But it would be ridiculous for us not to acknowledge that these genuine documents definitively prove that people in the U.S. government once planned false flag operations against a tiny island nation that seemed like the ravings of a mental patient. Uh, fearful? Oh, yeah. Sorry. Sort of forgot we were doing an interview. Thanks. So anyway, by the end of the Cold War, the American public had heard all about the horrible actions that the CIA had undertaken in the name of keeping the world safe for democracy, including attempted and potentially even successful assassinations, with a goddamned comedy cavalcade of planned stuff directed at Castro. Well, no wonder so many people believe the CIA is capable of anything. Absolutely. But it's worth remembering, as Wiener's book goes to considerable lengths to point out, while the CIA did all sorts of nasty stuff and planned still more, it was really bad at nearly all of it. In spite of decades of effort, the agency had basically no idea of what was really going on in the Soviet Union, the enemy it had been created to understand and oppose. When communism fell, the CIA was among the last to know, and a decade later, it also completely failed to see the threat posed by Al-Qaeda. And just to put a cherry on top, then-director George Tenet produced what he thought of as a slam-dunk case for Saddam Hussein having weapons of mass destruction in the lead-up to the 2003 Iraq War. Wait, wasn't that whole thing just politically motivated misreading of intelligence? That's not how Wiener reports it. While certainly the Bush administration was looking for proof that would justify their fears of Saddam Hussein and their urge to invade, the intelligence that Tenet developed and that Colin Powell famously delivered at the UN was honest to God the best the agency could do, and it was totally wrong. So to sum up, the CIA stirred up a great deal of mayhem, but nearly all of its efforts failed or never even got off the ground and it was completely flat-footed when it came to its core job of developing intelligence assets and understanding America's enemies. And finally, when called upon to deliver its best intelligence to justify an invasion, the agency confidently delivers a pile of complete horseshit believing they've struck gold. That's the long and short of it, yes. Wow. Lufreef, thanks so much for taking the time. And may I say, you were a delight to interview. It's so comfortable. Almost like talking to myself. My pleasure. So we've spent a lot of time laying out an airtight case proving that false flags are a real thing and that governments can and do engage in them for a variety of self-serving reasons. Also, it's perfectly clear that some of them work out and many of them don't. After all, keeping a conspiracy secret is hard. Ask Richard Nixon. Therefore, I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. Back when the country found out about the heinous shit the CIA was pulling in the name of making the world safe for freedom, there was a sense of disillusionment that is hard to overstate. It turned to a righteous fury that fueled a number of positive developments in the post-Watergate 70s, including the Church Committee hearing. But it also provided the more paranoid among us with a convenient, totally plausible new boogeyman on which to hang their most evidence-free suspicions about the secret powers that truly rule the world. For more detail on this mindset, see episodes 2, 1, 3 through 5, oh hell, basically everything we've ever done or ever will do, world without end, amen. 
Of course, spending too much time relating real events and too little time delving into the murky depths of irrational people's most feverish ideas makes us feel all twitchy. Which means it's now time for us to leave real history behind and start delivering the crazy. So, in the post-60s assassinations, post-Watergate, post-Congressional crackdown world, in which every American who bothered to look could find proof beyond a shadow of a doubt that their government had engaged in all manner of heinous activity that was never supposed to see the light of day, it could seem almost reasonable to simply assume that whatever the government said was 180 degrees from the truth, no matter the issue. Of course, the problem with this way of thinking is that it engenders a knee-jerk tendency to believe the exact opposite of whatever the government tells you, at least when it disagrees with your personal worldview, which is both awfully convenient for keeping unwelcome information out, and also uncritically reinforces one's self-referential Weltanschauung. And so, by commodious vicus of recirculation, we come back around to the modern definition of false flags and the important place that they hold in the conspiracist asshole worldview. As is our standard policy, we're going to let one of the paranoid provide a definition of their personal bugbears. Here then is Travis Stone, author of A Time for Deception, False Flags, Technology Suppression, and Deep CIA Secrets. False flag deception is a clear and specific act of self-inflicted violence or terrorism against one's own country, which is then blamed on a desired enemy. The intent result is increased public support for an attack against that possibly innocent enemy. Okay, that's a pretty good, concise definition. So taking this as our... Um, oh, sorry, you weren't finished. False flag is about blame. False flag is about fear. False flag must be horrific. False flag is self-inflicted. And false flag is about achieving public and political support. This suggests that modern false flag deception, if envisioned or used, is clearly a product of corporate influence military leaders. Eh... Uh, Anything else? An age-old scheme that follows false flag operations is well poisoning. The internet has revolutionized well poisoning, where the true stories are now immersed in a sea of crazy stories. Well poisoning taints the true stories with the crazy brush, spawning hesitation, discredit, and ultimately doubt, which reinforces the original false flag story as the truth, leading to an effective deception operation. Okay, I, I think I think she's finished. So this is the view of false flags that underpins the loud screaming voices and headlines that follow on the heels of nearly all horrific events these days. And even better, that bit about poisoning the well leads to the incredibly amusing phenomenon where one group of basket cases claims another group of Fruit Loops with a competing theory are in reality a group of shills for the powers that be, spreading disinformation to keep the public from ever hearing the real shit as purveyed by the original crazies. And, of course, this assertion is then aimed back at them by their lunatic opponents. It's a crazy snake eating its crazy tail. It's kind of delicious. Can we provide examples? Oh, we're so very happy, you ask. Consider, if you will, two voluble, self-styled truth-tellers whose personalities and political beliefs could not be more opposed. I speak, of course, of Alex Jones and Kevin Barrett. The former is likely someone you're already quite familiar with. Jones and his online Infowars empire have made headlines in recent years for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is the fact that they are huge fans of the current president, providing him with both full-throated support and a nice supply of unlikely but politically convenient conspiracy theories. Kevin Barrett is almost certain to be an obscure figure to you, unless you happen to be a 9-11 truther. Or have a totally unhealthy obsession with 9-11 truthers. 
But he's an undistinguished academic who rose to prominence first by becoming one of the loudest WTC attack skeptics, and then by turning his attention to a variety of other baseless assertions about government cover-ups. The thing that binds these chuckleheads together is their knee-jerk assumption that every violent, shocking event that happens in the Western world is, in some way or another, a false flag. But the thing about false flags is, they're by definition designed to be hard to identify. Those that we've found out about were mostly either obvious fuck-ups, eventually disclosed by the offending government or group, or proven through incredibly careful, painstaking journalism or historical research. But these guys don't care for any of that shit. Let's start with Mr. Barrett. He briefly made headlines in an academic freedom case from 2006 when the University of Wisconsin-Madison decided to allow him to teach an introduction to Islamic history course in spite of the fact that he had emerged as a prominent 9-11 truther. This decision then incurred the ire of many. Just hold on. Next episode, we're doing the whole 9-11 thing. Soup to nuts. Please note. The paranoid strain is officially on the side of an incredibly liberal reading of the First Amendment and supports academic institutions that wish to take a stand for their right to have whatever qualified instructors they choose teach courses responsibly, however vacuous or dumb those scholars' activities and theories are outside of that class's focus. But Barrett's still a total wackadoo, for the record. Since then, he's edited a series of books designed to deny the official story of any number of attacks, specifically those committed by assholes who swear allegiance to one or another Islamic terrorist organization as opposed to those assholes who attack based on other motives, or even no motive in particular. So, for example, you're not going to hear that much from Kevin Barrett about the Las Vegas shooting of 2017, but you're going to hear a shitload about Paris, Orlando, San Bernardino, and other incidents. Actually, Barrett did weigh in on the Las Vegas shooting, but only to decry some other loon balls who were trying to declare that the shooter was a Muslim, which he wasn't. But again, Barrett only tends his particular false flag garden. It's not hard to figure out how Barrett came to be the self-appointed defender of the nuh-uh theory of Islamic terrorism. He, like many, was disturbed by the spasm of anti-Muslim violence that flared in the wake of 9-11. In fact, as an adult convert to Islam, he had even more of a stake in opposing it than most. However, instead of concluding that he should use his knowledge of Islamic history to educate the public on the context and explanation for these attacks, he took option B. Option B, here defined as simply asserting that every attack that's launched against a Western country from 9-11 to yesterday, and that could possibly be attributed to any Muslim for any reason, is ipso facto a false flag event. You may think we're exaggerating here, but seriously, every major attack. Including, again, 9-11 itself. And again, wait for next time. Anywho, Barrett has, in recent years, taken to producing hastily printed anthologies of essays by various crazy-pants investigators— in order to debunk the mainstream narrative. And yes, there were air quotes all over that last sentence. Now, on the other side, we have Alex Jones, the official paranoid strain nominee for person with the worst influence on the world who hasn't technically committed a crime. Jones is happy to declare every mass casualty incident a false flag, but his worldview clearly separates those into two camps. Here he is, for example, talking about the Orlando nightclub shooting, an event that was perpetrated by a Muslim. The attacks in Orlando were a false flag terror attack. But before the mainstream media takes that out of context, I want to be clear. Our government and the governments of Europe allowed these huge hordes of radical jihadis in. So, yes, it's a false flag in that our government let it happen, run by Obama, just like Merkel did in Germany, so they can then say, oh, we've got to pass laws and hate laws banning your speech because you're making the Muslims angry. Or, oh my gosh, we've got to pass other hate laws you know, to deal with right-wingers and stuff. And we need your guns, of course, so you can't protect yourself. So, San Bernardino, all these events, the major Hassan attack, 
the government knew at the highest levels and tied the hands of the FBI, the military, and others in every case so they couldn't protect us so that when the attacks happened, they have an excuse to take more of our freedoms. So the false flag in this instance is basically a false flag of omission, if you will. The evil secret government that controls everything is deliberately letting in refugees to sow chaos, drive repressive laws, etc. But the tenor of his accusations changes when the accused shooter is a white American man who shoots up a bunch of people for any reason. In these cases, the response hues much more closely to Barrett's blanket denial of all aspects of the case, from the perpetrator's identities, to the rationale, to the question of whether or not it even happened. In fact, even as we're producing this episode, both the Las Vegas and the Texas church shootings were in the process of being transformed into false flag events by Jones' Infowars, among many, many other internet outlets. Both Barrett and Jones are, of course, aided and abetted in their nonsense by a phalanx of the similarly deluded. So rather than try to do a point-counterpoint here, we're just going to move through the past six years or so of horrific mass casualty events, looking for patterns in the false flaggers' denials, pointing out the stupidity, and unfortunately, dealing with the horrific effects that their mindless naysaying has on those who have to come to grips with the horror these attacks leave in their wake. Especially, of course, the survivors and the families of the dead. Sorry, folks. This is going to be gross, but we think it's also important. flag denialism has been popular in conspiracy circles well before 9-11 kicked it into high gear. In fact, longtime listeners will recall the bizarre scene in episode 4 when in 1995 self-styled militia leaders explained to a congressional committee their theory that the government of Japan actually carried out the Murrah Federal Building attack in Oklahoma City. But because we're unfortunately presented with a surfeit of disinformation, we're going to have to pick and choose. So with that, We'll begin with the horrific attack that was executed by an asshole named Anders Breivik in Norway in 2011. Or, at least, that's what they'd like you to think. As you may recall, or maybe not, the modern era being so unfortunately littered with similar incidents, Breivik was the lunatic far-right terrorist who took his political disagreements with Muslim immigration and feminism to kind of an extreme, blowing up eight innocent people with a bomb and then attacking a summer camp for left-wing teens, killing 69 others. The youngest was 14. It's worth noting here that there's literally no doubt at all that Brevik did what the authorities accused him of. He confessed, he had an extensive and well-documented trail of evidence and eyewitnesses tying him to the attack, and he's been a completely unrepentant douchebag ever since. Stories today, Norwegian mass murderer Anders Brevik, who admitted killing 77 people and taunted the court with Nazi salutes, has been declared sane by judges. He's been jailed for a maximum of 21 years for committing the country's worst atrocity since World War II, with his bombing and gun rampage in Oslo and Utøya Island. But broken down, his sentence equates to just over three months for each of his victims. Brevik smirked when he heard the verdict. At the end of his sentencing, he apologised to militant nationalists for not killing more people. He's always insisted... Cue the conspiracy theorists who don't give a shit about any of that. Andrew Culver, author of From Dallas to San Bernardino, False Flags and Conspiracies, ignores the actual fact-based story in favor of an astonishing series of impossible claims allegedly sourced from a mysterious report attributed to the Russian intelligence service, the FSB. According to this story, the attack attributed to Brevik was actually initiated by Britain's MI5 security service and the United States Central Intelligence Agency, CIA, to launch a two-phase attack upon Norway modeled after false flag operations in both Australia and America in the mid-90s. 
In case you're wondering, those supposedly false flag events were the OKC bombing and the horrific Port Arthur massacre, respectively. The reasons behind this attack, this FSB report states, is a desperate attempt by British, the European Union, and American banking interests to force Norway into their union. Norway is not a member of the EU. In order to loot their sovereign wealth fund of its estimated $1.5 trillion in wealth, without which the entire Western economy may collapse. Quick reality check. Six years later, Norway's still not in the EU, Britain's leaving the EU, and the US still has absolutely fuck all to do with Norway's sovereign wealth fund. Other than that, of course, this argument makes perfect sense. Oh, and don't worry, Alex Jones was on the case as well. Carried out by Anders Breivik, or Breivik. I am hoping and praying right now that as bad as this is, that this is a lone nut. Unfortunately, all the evidence points towards it being a provocateur event in the mold of countless other confirmed provocateur events that we've seen. Now, how do you sit here and explain to someone how your gut knows that something's an inside job? I mean, there's data that goes into that, uh, but it's thousands of pieces of data and research and history and understanding and timing. If mega corporations running governments are staging terror attacks and framing patsies and creating elaborate um, backstories or provocateuring psychopaths, as we know they've been caught doing in the past, then we're in a lot of trouble. We were reporting, of course, on Friday from the Norwegian newspapers that there were multiple shooters, as many as four. Uh, we were reporting that he is a Knights Templar, uh, high-level Mason. People laughed at us. That's now CNN, Associated Press. Uh, this is a very serious uh, globalist event. Uh, his close friends say that he'd been uh, disappearing for a while, acting strangely. That They believe, quote, he'd been brainwashed. Uh, of course, it was declassified in 77 that the CIA can take any man, woman, or child and turn them into an absolute, complete mind control slave in less than a year. In addition to his general bloviating, Jones begins delineating what he thinks are the key indicators that something is a false flag. Note, the actual determinant appears to be, does Alex Jones want to blame globalists, the Illuminati, etc., for something that has happened in the news? Also note, the answer is always yes. Indeed. But just for giggles, let's give him a chance to lay out his case. To be clear, I wish that uh, this was not a false flag or inside job. I wish the evidence wasn't pointing that direction. It is a lot more scary to know that it's mega corporations government networks, intelligence agencies uh, that are clearly uh, involved in so many of these attacks. And because our government and other governments have been caught staging terror attacks before, we have to look at them as suspects and see, are there the standard signatures, the fingerprints, the earmarks? Uh, and unfortunately, this has them all. There were drills days before of bombings in the area. That's now confirmed. Uh, reports of multiple shooters on the island. That's now confirmed. CNN Associated Press. Uh, all of these are the earmarks of an operation. Friends of the shooter report that this isn't how he was acting just a few years ago. And quote, we believe he must have been brainwashed. I have uh, if you study these false flags, uh, they've had a lot of them where you'll have multiple shooters. A lot of times someone believes they're part of a drill. Uh, after the event happens, they're basically drugged up, put on trial, never seen again. Jones also has a special friend who shows up for incidents like these. One self-styled expert with the unlikely name Webster Tarpley. Again, what we've got here with Breivik is a patsy 
on steroids. This is either a psychotic or a fanatic or a double agent or a mercenary or something like this. He is entirely a creature of NATO intelligence, and this entire event is inconceivable without sponsorship by NATO intelligence. First of all, uh, concerning the ideological profile of the Patsy, I mean, one of the main rules in an analysis, as you've shown over the years, is that we don't want to focus too much on the Patsy that is being projected through the world media. We want to look for the technicians and the moles that they don't want you to see, because the, the whole thing is designed to get you to fix it. Yeah, he's all flashy, and the and the Photoshop glamour shots, the videos, the treatises, it's all a big, fat ball of bacon on the end of a hook trying to catch a crawdad. Right, it's, it's like a, a public relations firm has gone to work for him. He's got publicity photos. It's like a press kit that people have been given for this character. Now, Listening to these two reinforce each other's paranoid, nonsensical opinions is highly entertaining. If, you know, you're me. Otherwise, it's both tedious and frightening, I'm sure. Aurora, Colorado. Jones also went wall-to-wall -wall on coverage of the Aurora movie theater shooting in 2012. Quick reminder, this incident involved an asshole named James Holmes shooting up a screening of The Dark Knight. Again, this was perpetrated by a white American. And again, this might be hard to believe. It appears this incident was, per Jones, also a false flag. Who'd have thunk it? And if you look at the full spectrum of information unfolding right now, 100% chance that the mass murder committed in the suburb of Denver, Colorado, right next to Littleton and Columbine, was a false flag mind control event. My point is, is that I, I worked with Watson right before we went live on air. We're doing another article right now, breaking down the 10 points that directly link this to false flag because there's at least 10 of them and this is where the shadow government is based we also get to hear from alex jones movie critic in this clip which is a real treat uh, from back in uh earlier in this month when i put a review out what three weeks ago or so of the dark knight and in that, I basically break down the fact that it is a weaponized propaganda psychological warfare system with subliminals commanding people to be in fear of terrorism, but also generating feelings of terror as a Hegelian dialectic. You noticed we assume that he alluded to a 10-point article explaining why we can be absolutely certain that Aurora was a false flag. Now, given the sheer volume of poorly researched material that can be found at InfoWars, pinpointing the article in question is a far from trivial effort. Near as we can tell, he's referring to the subtly titled Overwhelming Evidence Mounts Indicating Colorado Shooting Staged. Let's take a moment to review one claim from this piece of subliterate propaganda as it amply demonstrates the high journalistic standards that Jones' site upholds. The article, which is attributed to Infowars.com, tries to build a case that Holmes is being set up as a patsy as follows. New damning details on the Colorado shooting now surface on a daily basis. The latest is that the highest honors neuroscience student, James Holmes, was seeing a psychiatrist. Holmes was a patient of Dr. Lynn Fenton at the University of Colorado. Fenton worked for the Air Force in Texas and was known for dispensing dangerous pharmaceutical drugs, according to the Washington Post. So, the allegation here is supposed to be that Dr. Fenton's testimony can't be trusted because A, she worked for the military at one time, B, she dispenses dangerous pharmaceutical drugs. The reason for this latter claim is that Jones and company are nearly as anti-psychiatry as the Scientologists, and one of Jones' key... Baseless. 
assertions is that essentially all non-Muslim shooting attacks involve patsies who have been drugged up and mind-controlled by the CIA, globalists, Illuminati, etc., etc., to take away our freedoms. Read guns. The article, which cites the Washington Post, includes a non-working link to the Seattle Times for some reason, but a little googling reveals the likely source of the allegations. A Post article titled, Colorado Shooting Suspect James Holmes Was Seeing Psychiatrist at University Before Massacre. In it, we don't find any mention of the Air Force or of the supposed dangerous drugs she dispensed. Some additional digging, however, reveals the Seattle Times article that the anonymous author probably intended to link to. Colorado Shooting Suspect Was Seeing Psychiatrist, defense says. This one does, in fact, note that she was previously employed by the Air Force. As an acupuncturist. Oh, an acupuncturist? So, not like a top-level brainwasher? Hmm. Weird that InfoWars didn't clarify that. To find the poop on the prescriptions, though, we have to head to another contemporary article, also unsighted, from the New York Times, titled, Colorado Shooting Suspect Was Getting Psychiatric Care, which clarifies how this evil pill hustler... Uh, hmm. Wait a minute. In September 2004, Dr. Fenton received an admonition from Colorado's Board of Medical Examiners for prescribing medications, including the allergy medication Claritin, the sleeping pill Ambien, two tranquilizers, and the narcotic painkiller Vicodin for a few colleagues and her husband on several occasions, and failing to keep proper documentation of the prescriptions. The board noted in its admonition letter that Dr. Fenton was no longer writing prescriptions for people who were not her patients. So, she did a few friends a solid with some anti-sniffle pro-sleeping medicine? I mean, I grant that she probably shouldn't be handing out tranquilizers and Vicodin willy-nilly, but she is, you know, a doctor. Now, just to review, InfoWars described these facts this way. Fenton worked for the Air Force in Texas and was known for dispensing dangerous pharmaceutical drugs, according to the Washington Post. I count that as two half-truths on the allegations and a full-on falsehood on the attribution, which is weird for a guy who seems so opposed to fake news. And a quick point about mind control. As we saw with the Ultra Project, among others, the CIA has definitely experimented with ways of controlling people's minds in the past, as, we can be sure, have other clandestine agencies, private groups, etc. But there's no real evidence that mind control, of the sort that you see in films like The Manchurian Candidate, where a brainwashed soldier is sent to kill a political leader at the bidding of his foreign masters, has ever, or even could ever, happen. Jones cites examples like Sirhan Sirhan, Bobby Kennedy's assassin, as well as John Lennon's murder and Reagan's shooting as examples of mind-controlled, Patsies he can tie to his raving about modern-day shooters like Holmes. But for all of the noise he makes, the evidence just isn't there. Again, as we saw in the last episode with Chemtrails, the CIA would love to have total control over people's minds. But they can't, and they don't, and their abysmal track record proves it. Sandy Hook This one makes me physically nauseated, but it's also perhaps the most vivid example of the horrific effects of Joan's blind, irresponsible declarations. If you have miraculously managed to remove this event from your mind, my apologies. But I'm of course talking about the horrific murder of small children at Sandy Hook School in Newtown, Connecticut. The shooting was quickly and rightly attributed to a deeply troubled monster named Adam Lanza, who also killed his mother that same morning. But of course, Alex Jones... Yeah, fuck it. Just listen to this bullshit yourself. And all they got to do is get some mental patient hopped up on psychotropics and then have their psychiatrist tell them to go do it. And uh, it's, it's got the telltale signs here. CBS News reporting that uh, there were reportedly two shooters seen. And uh, the Atlantic Wire is also uh, reporting that. Well, I 
personally witnessed some really weird stuff going on today. Um, they bust all those kids out of there. I don't know when they arrived, but I find it very odd that this shooting goes down and they bust all those kids out of the high school. Number two, you look at the... Uh, oh, wait, 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 be specific because more than half the school was not there at Columbine. 127 yeah. bombs were planted. There were multiple shooters. All that came out, but but it was later, so people don't know. That was a government operation. So much evidence, I don't have time to go into it. People that want to research it can. Uh, if you had things like the school officials and people not there, their kids not there, that's telltale. But 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 we don't, these are things to look for from past operations. You know, if the guy had been in the military, if he'd been assigned a government psychiatrist, another big deal. But 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 we don't know this yet. We, we're getting reports of multiple shooters. What you do is you send in one drugged up person, dressed the same, and then your people go in and shoot everybody. And then, you, but you have the video of that other guy who thinks they're part of a drill. And that's why they can use these school shooting drills where they're unannounced, where they come in and scare everybody with guns and say, remember, they've had them where they say, we're the militia against public school. That's usually the federal drill. And the schools get in trouble with parents and they say, well, we were just going with, with uh, you know, the federal guidelines. So they'll use people that they get to be part of the drill. They'll shoot real people, have the mercenaries go out the back door, kill the people that were part of the drill, and then you've got your school mass shooting. And that's how they did Columbine uh, as well. Harris and Kleibold were making a film about shooting everybody at the school. They'd done it before, sanctioned by the school. The, the, the new thing, the videos, all of it was part of the film they were producing. It was the same thing for the bombers on 7-7 in London. And that all later came out that MI6 ran that. What it's come to in Alex, I'm telling you, man to man, if this guy came in and it was a lone shooter and he has to reload his gun, 27 people, I hate to say I'm a cop here, but 27 people, that's a lot of people to be shooting. His gun would have had to run out of ammo. I know you. I know me. If that you-know-what ran out of bullets, I'd be jumping on him and trying to kill him. I mean, listen, I, I've, I'm not bragging saying I'm a tough guy. I've had people pull guns on me three times and every time i took the gun away from him and pistol whipped him and i'm not bragging uh i mean that's 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 what i did uh but thank god i'm alive i know i've got guardian angels thank you so much sir more calls with the timing out. and everything that happened this is staged and you know i've been saying the last few months get ready for big mass shootings and get ready down the road Al-Qaeda will blow up aircraft with shoulder-fired missiles. And the media won't even point out that they got them when our government helped them take over Libya and then Syria. And uh, they're, they're, going to, um, they're going to start their war against the American people very soon. The globalists have taken the country over. They want to so there's plenty the there to chew over, but let's point out a few of the most amazingly shitty things about that, which are also typical of Jones. First, you'll note that he refers back to a specious view of a previous event, in this case Columbine, and treats his totally unsupported bullshit as settled fact. No, Harrison Klebold weren't making a movie. Read the incredible book Columbine by David Cullen if you'd like an accurate, carefully researched history of that horror. Back to our subject, he then walks us through how something like this might be done if it was perpetrated by his all-purpose enemy, the globalists also insisting that this process has been proven to have been followed in other similar events. It hasn't. Then he humble brags about how brave he is. Then he makes his preliminary declaration that, unfortunately, he's concluded that this is probably a government setup. And, as icing on the cake, 
he announces a prediction for the future that absolutely didn't come true, and which he will promptly forget that he ever made. But the main thing he does is take every piece of eyewitness testimony that comes in as gospel, and then proceeds to use it to throw doubt on the real story of the event that is painstakingly pieced together in the aftermath by actual professionals. Reviewing the next few years' worth of related broadcasts, we get to follow Jones's associates as they make believe that they're conducting an actual investigation of the massacre. We've got a, a break here in about a minute and a half, but... Okay. Uh, again, Dr. Steve Pachinik joins us here, always always interesting and, and, and very informative. I see false flag all over the place, not just at Sandy Hook. Well, I, let's limit it just to Sandy Hook because that's very important. That was literally where the president took his ground and made a, a, he put a line in the sand and said, this is where I stand. These poor kids who were never killed, who were never present. And he created a total absurd scenario which made no sense, had no credibility, was inconsistent. He used all these FEMA executives who'd been in Texas in your area, Mr. Gene Rosen, Susan Collins, who wrote a Hunger Games, and there's worth 600 million who wrote this type of scenario. This is the beginning of the end of the false flags for FEMA, for CIA, and others. So I see the upside to this, Alex. And you know, I'm not. I'm You've not got people clearly coming up and, and, and laughing and then doing the fake crying. We've clearly got people where it's actors playing different parts of different people. The building bulldoze, covering up everything. Adam Lanza trying to get guns five times, we're told. Uh, the witnesses, you know, not saying it was him. People out in the woods. But we've got the investigator here, Wolfgang W. Albig. I'm going to give you the floor, sir. Go over your 16 points, the problems, the issues, uh, and uh, break down what you believe is a total hoax. In our school, and you know what I learned, Alex? When you hear shots fired in your high school, those parents will come at you with every ounce of energy. They are ready to tear down the fence to get to their child. At Sandy Hook, as you said, guess what they're doing? They're going in circle. I didn't see any parents have any sense of urgency to go get their child. And then you read about this guy. So we're sure that this is all highly stimulating for the InfoWars audience and probably highly lucrative for Jones and the empire of questionable branded supplements and other nonsense he advertises on his show. But what is the effect of airing all of this unsupported, highly emotional bullshit? Well, predictably, the most unhinged elements of Jones's audience tend to take all of this very seriously. Seriously enough that they end up taking matters into their own hands. Another Keeping a Honest report now on the growing conspiracy theories about the shootings at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut. If you don't know about this, you are going to be stunned. We were in Newtown last night, and a number of residents have been inundated with hateful messages, crank calls by people who believe they are part of a government and media conspiracy surrounding the shootings. Now, it's not just some Internet extremists alleging these conspiracies. This is a guy named James Tracy, a tenured associate professor at Florida Atlantic University, a public school that's taxpayer funded. Now, as we told you first on Friday, Professor Tracy claims the shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary did not happen as reported and may not have happened at all. Here's what he wrote originally on his personal blog, and I quote, one is left to inquire whether the Sandy Hook shooting ever took place, at least in the way law enforcement authorities and the nation's news media have described. Now, as we told you Friday, normally we wouldn't dignify these types of remarks by covering them, but James Tracy is a tenured professor at a public university. And these claims by him and, and others online have begun to cause deep distress to victims' families. Sandy we invited Hook Professor massacre Tracy took to come Mark Barden's son, night. Daniel. Barden has become an outspoken gun control advocate. Alex Jones is a conspiracy theorist and 9-11 truther. 
His most vile theory is the belief that the Sandy Hook massacre was staged. No one with any common sense believes in Jones's wild theory. What makes this so upsetting is that Alex Jones is an advisor to Donald Trump and his campaign. In a recent interview, Barden tore into Jones and Trump. Barden said, The Republican presidential nominee of the United States is being advised by a delusional sociopath. It speaks for itself. What else can you say about that? Sandy Hook's truther has been arrested for terrorizing one of the victims of that tragic shooting. Now, the victim is Len Posner, whose child died as a result of uh, that mass shooting. And apparently 57-year-old Lucy Richards believes this notion that Sandy Hook was somehow a weird conspiracy to try to take our guns away. So as a result, in Florida, the Department of Justice has just announced the arrest of this Tampa, Florida woman who, believing like Alex Jones, that the deaths at Sandy Hook were faked. She threatened to kill one of the bereaved parents of a Sandy Hook victim. So apparently Richards is accused of telling the parent, you're going to die. Death is coming to you real soon. And also, uh, look behind you, it's death. So she just kept attacking this guy after he's already been victimized by one of the most tragic massacres. The 2012 massacre at a Connecticut elementary school was a hoax, was sentenced to five months in federal prison on Wednesday after pleading guilty to threatening a parent of one of the children killed. Richards of the Tampa area pleaded guilty in Fort Lauderdale. But the worst part of this whole thing is how, after his scaremongering blew up in his face, Jones shucked and jived, backfilling and denying his role in the insanity. For example, when former pantsuit model and Democratic candidate Hillary Clinton accurately pointed out that Jones had claimed that no one died at Sandy Hook, Jones was apparently just flabbergasted at the nerve of that woman. And basically twisted what I've actually said. She lied to the people, not just the U.S., but the world and said that when I talk about 9-11 being an inside job, that the whole government did it. Or that I say that no children died at Sandy Hook and they were all actors. I've never said any of those things. Sure, they've edited videos together. To mis- oh, and in case you need to hear it, why not leave this repulsive story with audio of Jones saying precisely the thing that he claimed that he had never, ever said uh, moments yeah, ago. So- Sandy Hook is a synthetic, completely fake, with actors, in my view, manufactured. I couldn't believe it at first. I knew they had actors there, clearly, but I thought they killed some real kids. And it just shows how bold they are that they clearly used actors. I mean, they even ended up using... I speak for all of us here when I say, from the bottom of my heart, Hey, Alex, go fuck yourself. Yeah. What she said. Okay, let's turn this nightmare of willful reality denial in a different direction, skipping forward a few years and turning our spotlight on Kevin Barrett. Barrett, while somewhat less of a self-aggrandizing bloviator, is just as much of an unreality enthusiast as Jones, albeit with a different focus. As mentioned previously, Barrett is mostly dedicated to disproving any and all attacks perpetrated by Muslims. Instead, he believes each of these events has been staged by some combination of globalists, neocons, Zionists, and other malefactors. Yes, there is a very icky flavor of anti-Semitism to Barrett's commentary, but we're going to simply acknowledge that ugliness and move on, since there's so much other crazy to deal with here. He's been at this since 9-11, but we're going to join the stupidity in progress in the wake of the Charlie Hebdo shootings. Barrett and other conspiracy-friendly pseudo-intellectuals got together and produced a book of essays called We Are Not Charlie Hebdo, Freethinkers Question the French 9-11, 
We're sure this was a cornucopia of dipshittery, but we've instead decided to jump into the Barrett oeuvre with his follow-up, Another French False Flag, Bloody Tracks from Paris to San Bernardino, which begins with coverage of the Bataclan shootings of November 2015. Barrett whinges at the outset that he had been so stupid as to accept the official version of events during the Hebdo shootings that took place earlier the same year. This time, though, he didn't buy the official story from the jump. Quoting his own notebooks from the moment he heard of the attacks, this brave truth-teller has it all laid out. Since we now know the Charlie Hebdo attack was a Gladio II false flag by the usual suspects, NATO hardliners and Zionists, can we safely make the same assumption about these new Friday the 13th Paris atrocities? I think we can. The first question, as always, is who gains? And the answer, as always, is authoritarian insiders, Zionists, militarists, Islamophobes, New World Order out of chaos freaks. Well, that settles that. By the way, Gladio II is a made-up thing based on a real thing. In this case, Operation Gladio, a NATO operation that created armies designed to stay behind and fight should Europe be invaded by the Soviet-era Warsaw Pact. Gladio II is a current-day yet entirely non-existent version of the same thing that, of course, is designed to further the interests of the hobgoblins that infest Barrett's mind. Barrett is also quick to reassure you that he's definitely not a conspiracy theorist. See, in his opinion, if he were a conspiracy theorist, he would suspect that the timing of the Paris attacks was based around the fact that he, himself, was leaving the city for a month. So since he only sort of believes that, he's totally not a conspiracy theorist, you guys. Okay, dipshits, let's hear your imaginary evidence that the Bataclan attacks, and for that matter, the attacks a month later in San Bernardino, are false flags. Well, first off, the attackers could not be aligned with ISIS because that is a fabricated synthetic terror group, not a real Muslim group. Created by the very powers that be in Western countries who are waging the war on terror. An essay in the same volume by Brandon Martinez baselessly asserts, The West created ISIS to help Israel. The ISIS phenomenon itself was deliberately cultivated by Western powers as part of the lunatic bid, primarily in the interest of Israel, to depose Syria's resilient President Bashar al-Assad and lead the Arab country to death. We're not going to bother further with this ISIS attribution stupidity. What else you got? Basically just a bunch of bold assertions and just-so stories. Let's hit a few highlights. Barrett asserts, with no evidence, that Muslims would not attack the victims of Paris and San Bernardino, concert-going liberals, and those who help the disabled, respectively. In fact, he asserts that unless and until Muslim terrorists attack Dick Cheney, Donald Rumsfeld, and the rest of the folks he blames for stirring up anti-Muslim sentiment, all other attacks blamed on Muslims are fake. Or to quote the man directly, Based on what we know of other events such as 9-11, I think it's fair to assume these new events are probably false flags and put the burden of proof on the authorities and mainstream media to prove they aren't. This, the concept of proving a negative, is the last refuge of every irrational, self-satisfied dumbass throughout history, from creationists to flat earthers to anti-vaxxers. I'm justified in believing my bullshit until you prove it's bullshit is literally the worst way to construct an argument ever created. Seriously. Think about it for a moment. No matter what the attack, Barrett believes your first thought should be that it is a false flag, because fuck evidence, apparently. Next point. Barrett and co. use the same immediate eyewitness accounts that Jones uses to question the official story. In this case, he focuses on assertions that the assailants in both Paris and San Bernardino were in fact white guys, not brown-skinned Muslims. But here's the thing with that. Eyewitness accounts are notoriously problematic. In fact, experts have questioned whether these accounts should even be used in many criminal prosecutions. There's a famous experiment where viewers watch a video of people passing basketballs back and forth. 
Half of the people are in white shirts, half in black. The viewers are asked to count the number of passes made by people wearing white shirts. During this video, a person wanders into the midst of the action wearing a gorilla suit. Fully half of the people who watch the video under experimental conditions totally failed to see the gorilla because they were focused on counting white shirt passes. The point of this being, traumatized people escaping a massacre are not the most reliable detailed witnesses. One particularly germane example of this is the Westgate Mall attack of 2013 in Nairobi, Kenya. As covered by the brilliant podcast Radio Lab, eyewitnesses completely failed to understand what was actually going on. The team had access to all the closed-circuit camera footage. Remember, this is, this is a mall. It's a modern mall, so there's cameras everywhere. He's seen it from the beginning to the end of the attack from all those different perspectives. And that according to that footage, everything that we had reported in those first few days was wrong. Huh, wrong, wrong in what way? Well, for instance, 10 to 15 terrorists. No, there weren't 10 to 15 terrorists. There were four. Four. Huh. They also said, okay, you've been reporting this, uh, this multi-ethnic coalition of Arabs, Kenyans, and Somalis that so many eyewitnesses told you. No, they're all Somalis. They're all Somali ethnicity, all four of them. And there was also no evidence that any of the gunmen escaped. That's an enormous discrepancy. But these people aren't lying. Humans are just terrible at recording accurate memories during highly stressful situations. But that doesn't excuse Barrett or Jones taking advantage of these well-intentioned reports to serve their personal conspiracy agendas. Craig Paul Roberts, who totally believes that none of these attacks are actually the work of the terrorists who, you know, committed them, decides to actually have his cake and eat it too, noting, Really, it is a wonder that there are not round-the-clock real terrorist attacks on Western countries who certainly deserve them. Now, recall that earlier Barrett argued we should consider all attacks on Western civilians to be a false flag because actual Islamic terrorists would only attack government officials specifically responsible for Middle East policy that they disagree with. But Roberts here is saying that if these attacks on civilians were being perpetrated by said Islamic terrorists, which they're definitely not, duh, we would totally deserve them. Other essayists question whether the ringleader of Paris, Abdel Hamid Abaoud, could possibly have slipped past border security. See, Abaoud is quoted in the official magazine of ISIS talking about how God had protected him from detection by border security. Our essayists then question this story. But it's an interview with a terrorist printed by a pro-ISIS magazine. You should probably question the shit out of any claims it makes, right? But arguably, the biggest piece of quote-unquote evidence that these yahoos cling to is the fact that there was a terror drill held in Paris mere hours before the actual attacks. And this is actually true. Whoa! Fucking smoking gun, yeah? Sure. Wait, smoking gun of what? Let's think about this. Both the Barrett contingent and the Jones people are obsessed with any instance where an anti-terror drill was held by law enforcement in any time frame near an actual attack because this supposedly adds fuel to the conspiracy fire. But why would that be true? If you're the evil globalists, neocons, whatever pseudonym for the Illuminati or Jews these assholes are using this week, why would you put a bunch of armed law enforcement as close as possible to your fake terror attack? Conspiracists are not honestly super clear on this, but it's apparently suspicious as shit. Is it? Not really. This is one of them coincidences that the human mind is great at overestimating. As noted by Thomas Gilovich in his skeptical classic How We Know What Isn't So, there are all kinds of connections our brains make out of coincidences. This leads to an array of weird situations that tend to convince many of the existence of the supernatural. We think of someone we haven't spoken to in years, and then that person calls. 
that we only remember that time, not the thousands of times we've thought of long-lost acquaintances who then don't call. Or real-life example, your host works in the Bay Area, where there is an annual earthquake drill. A few years ago, several hours after the drill, there was an actual earthquake. Coincidence? I think not. I mean, yes, it was obviously a coincidence. Don't be stupid. Let's make a brief stop at the Orlando Pulse nightclub shooting while we're here. This one is an interesting overlap between the Barrett and Jones worldviews. The assailant was a Muslim, but Jones also believed it was an integral part of the scheme to seize Americans' guns. Because if shooting a bunch of kindergartners didn't lead to gun legislation, shooting a bunch of club-going adults certainly would. Self-proclaimed expert Robert Steele, who's a big fan of Barrett, provides the conspiracy synopsis of Orlando in the following word salad. If no one actually died, indeed Mateen and his family could be en route to the witness protection program and a heavy resettlement as this is written, then this was a badly staged DHS false flag operation with the possibility that some of the good people trapped in our bad system of government knowingly allowed it to be so bad as a form of internal civil disobedience. A good thing. You get that? Orlando was so obviously an inside job that it indicates that somebody among the conspiracy planners deliberately fucked up their efforts in order to signal to people like Robert Steele. That signal being something along the lines of, ha, this was terrorist attack, lol, JK. Also, the Orlando false flag was apparently instigated because Muhammad Ali had died, and there was a bunch of coverage of how much everyone loved that guy. So there was all of this pro-Muslim attention in the media. The only solution, of course, was to create a false flag incident where a group of masked paramilitaries would shoot dozens of gay clubgoers and then blame it on a single troubled Muslim dude. Occam's razor, motherfuckers! Uh, okay, that's it. I, I can't do any more of this. Just a tiny bit more. One of our favorite parts of the Kevin Barrett saga is his totally amazing theories about The Economist and numerology. ...who discovered that in The uh, Economist which is the leading business magazine. It's owned by the Rothschild banking family, which is a very big, wealthy, powerful family, as I'm sure you're aware. Uh, they had an issue uh, about what's going to happen in 2015. It was published in 2014, in November 2014. And it had all these weird cryptic sort of apparent sort of allegories, prophetic allegories of what might be coming in 2015. One of them was down in the lower right-hand corner, and you can see it there with Alice of Alice in Wonderland fame, standing there next to two arrows uh, with numbers on them. And behind her, over her shoulder, you see La Belle Ferronniere, which is a famous painting of Leonardo da Vinci, which hangs in the Louvre. So you look at this, okay, what, what could this possibly mean? Well, Alice in Wonderland means false realities through the looking glass. Uh, the painting means Paris. And two arrows with numbers on them, what could that be? Well, you start to think, you know, maybe it means two attacks in 2015, and the second one coming on what date? If you take those numbers and scramble them and play with them, there's only one date you can get in 2015 using the you know, two-digit, two-digit, two-digit number code, uh, which is 11-13-15, which is the date of this huge attack in Paris. Uh, so you can try it, and nobody have challenged people, and nobody else has found a way to play with those numbers and create any other dates in 2015. It's, uh, so to me, that, that's... Uh, kind of strange and suspicious. And if you, know, if you hadn't heard about this so-called predictive programming before, you might say, wow, what's Kevin Barrett smoking? <laughs> He's been watching too many X-Files. The question of what Barrett's smoking does indeed seem germane. I've included a link to the image he was raving about in the show notes. 
But for those of you out there who are lazy, the two arrows he's discussing are marked 11.5 and 11.3, respectively, and they are embedded in the ground in the image next to Miss Alice of Wonderland fame, all of which will only seem mysterious for another couple of minutes. While contradicting conspiracy dipshits' baseless assertions normally requires a lot of legwork, this one was kind of a layup. Longtime listeners may recall that we interviewed an economist journalist for our first episode, we reached out to him again to demand that he explain Barrett's explosive claims about his magazine. If he can! LG Sweet, you are the first ever Paranoid Strain two-time interview subject. How do you feel about that? I feel pretty good about it. In fact, I think I was the first ever interviewee, or is that is that not correct? Don't let it go to your head, but yes, that is correct. The reason that we are contacting you is because noted super genius Kevin Barrett has a theory about The Economist, um, which my listeners will just have heard a little clip of. Could you explain, uh, in, to the best of your understanding, what this theory is and uh, how it connects to the Paris attacks of 2015? Right. So I've watched the clip in question, and apparently the magazine The World in 2015, which is an annual publication we do at the end of 2014, we published The World in 2015 with our predictions about the coming year, and uh, your friend seems to think that we signaled our planning of the uh, the two attacks in Paris in 2015 via a, a picture of Alice in Wonderland, um, a, a, a painting by Mike, no, by Leonardo that hangs in the Louvre, and two arrows in the ground with, uh, I think, six uh, numerals on them, and that signals uh, through the looking glass, we're going to have an attack in Paris because that's where the Louvre is. And these numbers, if rearranged, spell the date of one of the two attacks. But the two arrows also signify two attacks, although we only signaled the date of one of them for some reason. And that, um, that, that this was this was done by The Economist, which is owned by the Rothschilds, as, as the, the gentleman said. So that's my understanding of his theory. The Rothschilds pull these kind of attacks off and they own The Economist and they used the world in 2015 to signal what they were planning to do. Barrett makes a brief but clearly, uh, to his mind and his audience's deeply meaningful statement, that The Economist is owned by the Rothschild family. Is that true? Uh, no. Although, and well, you can say The Economist is owned by its shareholders, which is pretty much true of any uh, incorporated uh, company. And we do have uh, the Rothschilds as shareholders. So they are our second biggest shareholders with, I think, something around the order of 20% of the uh, of the shares. There is no majority shareholder of The Economist, and there never has been. We have a trust that has been in place since we were founded, uh, or, or after the founder died. His trust that passed on The Economist uh, stated that nobody would ever be able to control a majority of the shares. So control would always be dispersed, and no single entity would be able to use The Economist for exactly the kind of thing that uh, Mr. Barrett seems to think that uh, we're doing. So the biggest shareholder, in case anyone cares, is an Italian company called Exor. You'll most likely not have heard of Exor, but it's the family, the Agnelli family, um, who's better known for owning Fiat. And Exor is their holding company for lots of bits and pieces of companies that they uh, own. And they own about 40% of The Economist, of which uh, a, a smaller share is actually voting share. So even they don't have as much as 40% of the votes, and the Rothschilds most certainly don't. What they do have is uh, one person who was on the board, Linda Rothschild. She's American, actually. She married into the family, um, and she was on our board for a time, and now she's not. So, um, no, the Rothschilds do not own the economy. Or that's what they want you to believe, right? 
Right. I'm, I, I'm of course part of the, I am of course part of the conspiracy. So um, everything, everything that I say should go with the, with the asterisk that I, I am clearly going to tell you what the conspiracy is telling me to tell you. Obvi. So um, uh, the other more cogent question is, did that cover predict the attacks in Paris in 2015? If not, what did it do? Well, no, it didn't, because we had no idea that the attacks were going to go on. I don't know about this publication, I should mention, because in uh, 2015, I was the deputy editor of The World in 2016. So I know how, uh, how this magazine is put together, because... I worked on it for about three months the following year. So I didn't work on World in 2015, but I did work on World in 2016. And um, basically, we ask our journalists and a lot of uh, sort of outside celebrities and famous-ish people to write us a piece about some prediction that they have for the year coming up. And um, most of those predictions are either so bland that they can't be wrong, or some of them lean out and they're either spectacularly right or spectacularly wrong. Every year, we nail a few every year. We get a few wrong. And uh, in, in the next year's issue, we actually like to round up what we got right and wrong in the past issue. You'll see in the world in 2015, which I have gone back and found a copy of, that we don't make any mention of this at all. So, of course, we, we didn't predict in the pages uh, this attack. But Barrett seems to think we signaled it with these arrows and Alice in Wonderland and the, and the painting from the Louvre on the cover. Um, I can tell you about the arrows and Alice. I can't remember where the painting is there. I didn't have time to look that up. But Alice in Wonderland is on the cover because it was the 150th anniversary of the uh, publication of Alice in Wonderland. We had a culture article about exactly that. So the reason Alice in Wonderland is there is not to signal that you're now through the looking glass, people, but just because we had an article about the actual literal Alice in Wonderland. Uh, the two arrows are a fun fact that are really going to make you think we were having a conspiracy because there are some numerals on the arrows which Barrett reorders to come up with the date of one of the two Paris attacks and says, uh, this is obvious proof that we knew when those were going to happen. As a matter of fact, those arrows were uh, related to an article inside the edition on China's growth targets. Every year, the Chinese government says we're going to target, target uh, GDP growth of about 9% a year or 8.6 or 10.2. And um, we had an article about their growth targets in there. And that article was illustrated with um, a, a bullseye and various arrows with different numbers on them for the targets that the Chinese Communist Party had had in the years past. And so we took those two arrows for, I think, the current year and the, and the next year and put them on the cover. Only between the finalization of the cover and the finalization of the article inside, the targets actually changed so that the numbers on the arrows actually don't match the copy in the article in the China section of the magazine so that you'll uh, <laughs> you'll find that if you want to if you want to be paranoid about it, what are those numbers doing there? I've just told you the actual story, which is they were the old numbers that became out of date after the cover was closed. But um, if you want to rejigger them and uh, come up with something else, you're, of course, welcome to do that. OK, so can I, before we go, congratulate The Economist on... A, arranging it so that China's preliminary growth targets would allow them to embed this secret message about a future event, and B, to arrange it through some sort of time machine, I assume, so that Lewis Carroll published the book 150 years before, so that you would be able to signal all of this to Kevin Barrett and his followers. Yeah, it was it was a pretty it was a pretty boss move, I thought, uh, to pull all those things off. Not many publications are thriving and so influential as the economist these days. And now you know just exactly how influential we are. Uh, LG Sweet, thank you very much for being our first second time 
interviewee, and I think we can both look forward to the point when some lunatic cuts just the piece of audio where you and I pretended that the conspiracy was real and turns it into the beginning of a new conspiracy. I, I will look forward to that day. There's apparently a whole cottage industry in dissecting the world in 20, 20x um, every year. So there's a whole ton of YouTube videos about this publication. I didn't know we were that famous. I'm kind of flattered. So we will inevitably talk about this again. Great. By the way, Barrett's obsession with numerology goes well beyond this incident. He seems firmly to believe that the evil conspiracy leaves clues to its works in the form of numerological stuff that super smart dudes like Kevin Barrett can interpret for you sheep. Here are a few representative quotes from an article Barrett published in the conspiracy rag VeteransToday.com in 2014 titled 11 Examples of Illuminati Numerology. Barrett believes that the conspirators really dig the number 11. See, apparently the 311 Madrid bombings happened exactly 911 days after 9-11. Spooky, right? No, of course not, but let's listen in anyway. Again, I can't emphasize this enough. Barrett actually thinks these represent believable evidence. The New World Order Banks was introduced to the Euro on 1-1 of 1999. Note that the digits 999 are not just 666 upside down. They also contain 99, which is a multiple of 11. And not just any multiple. 1-1-1999 does seem to bear an uncanny resemblance to 911. Y'all, that was the first piece of evidence he published in this article. That was the point he was using to construct his whole goddamn argument. Dear God, do I love how crazy this guy is. Construction began on the Pentagon on 9-11-1941, exactly 60 years to the day before the big human sacrifice. Ooh, fuck, that's powerful, stupid. Even better, Barrett thinks that the Indonesian and Japanese tsunamis are both part of the plot even crediting conspiracy bogeyman The Harp Project See episode 6 for details with artificially triggering both events. The, quote, Fukushima tsunami of 3-11-11. This state not only has two big, fat, juicy 11s, it also bears an uncanny relationship with 9-11 and the subsequent 3-11 Madrid follow-up. If you add up all the digits in 3-11-2011, you get 9. And if you write the date in international style, 11-3-2011, you get 11-3-squared-11. Recall that in December 2010, the NWO banksters allegedly threatened to use an earthquake weapon on Japan if it didn't hand them its postal bank, the biggest savings bank in the world. Was Fukushima the result of an undersea Israeli nuke plus style sabotage? <sighs> Jesus. I think I need a cigarette. Was that stupid as good for you as it was for me? So the thing all of the above false flag conspiracy claims have in common is a total lack of evidence. But earlier we saw how frequently the CIA, to name just one clandestine agency, actually did plan, if not carry out, false flag events like Operation Northwoods. So nobody's going to believe Barrett or Jones because they're completely nuts. But still, what does a plausible modern false flag look like? Well, it might look a lot like the St. Petersburg bombings in Russia in 1999. There's a magnificent story about this subject in episode 614 of This American Life, which I recommend highly. Here's host Ira Glass offering a quick synopsis. St. Petersburg bombing. There was another bombing that people speculated about. And in that one, there actually was some evidence that raised real questions. That happened right when Vladimir Putin was coming to power. This was back in 1999. Boris Yeltsin was president, running Russia. Putin was the prime minister. 
not well-known, not well-liked, polling at 2% as a possible presidential candidate. And then, Putin had only been prime minister for a month. There was a series of bombings of apartment buildings in Moscow and elsewhere. 300 people died. Putin blamed it on Chechen rebels, invaded Chechnya, started the Second Chechen War, which he won. It was a popular war, catapulted him into the presidency. When he took office, he had 53% of the vote. And even back then, when he took office in 2000, there was a question. Did he bomb those buildings himself to create the pretext for the war? In his own Producer Robin Simeon then goes through a carefully pieced together, thoroughly reported story that presents the most likely evidence for and against the idea that Putin or his associates may have false flag bombed their own people. And the evidence is significant. It both suggests that Chechen terrorists would have had a great deal of trouble carrying out the bombings they were accused of, and also verifiable information connecting the FSB, again, that's like the modern KGB, to that evidence. But even with all of this, which is far more support than any of Jones or Barrett's claims have, the piece draws only very tentative conclusions, saying this raises difficult questions, that the story may be hard to conclusively prove one way or another. It leaves room for more investigation, as well as the possibility that we will never have definitive answers. Contrast that with Barrett and Jones' absolute, headstrong assurance that their evidence-free accusations are bulletproof. That's because the This American Life story is reporting. Jones and Barrett, as self-aggrandizing crackpots, clearly consider themselves above these sorts of concerns. Okay, it's time for the final segment of our show. And while the subject is probably a foregone conclusion... That doesn't mean it won't be fun. And now, ladies and gentlemen, from the four corners of our great land, we present this episode of Profiles in Crazy. Up yourself. I mean, this is what they're... What do you think tap water is? It's a gay bomb, baby. You think I am like, oh, shocked by it, so I'm up here bashing it because I don't like gay people. I don't like them putting chemicals in the water that turn the friggin' frogs gay. Do you understand that? Yep, we're going to talk even more about Alex Jones. Alex Jones is an asshole who hosts an internet and radio show from Austin, Texas. These endeavors appear to be funded by his real business, running a direct mail empire selling questionable supplements to his audience of credulous followers, as has been ably documented by the magnificent John Oliver. But, but there is a piece of context you may be less aware of, and that concerns the nature of Jones's show itself. It is four hours long. And if you tune into the whole thing, your most shocking discovery might be how frequently and shamelessly he pitches products. Radio hosts doing ads is not inherently unusual, but since 2013, Jones has increasingly focused on promoting his own products, which he sells on his site under his InfoWars Life brand, particularly vitamins and nutraceuticals, uh, which I believe are the result of the word nutrition fucking the word pharmaceutical from behind. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's what it is. But this, this is a big part of Jones's business. Two-thirds of his funding reportedly comes from selling his products. And there are... Jones is famous for a number of things, none of them good. Earlier, we discussed how he and his fellow ghouls managed to make the lives of grieving parents even worse... But there's so much more horrific shit to know about this strange, bitter, angry man. Let's start with one of my favorites. It turns out that Jones himself is the focus of an online conspiracy theory. You may recall from previous episodes that we here at The Strain have a deep and abiding love of legendary comedian Bill Hicks, who died at age 32 of pancreatic cancer. 
Hicks, unlike Jones, was a brave and original creative force whose anger and righteousness was frequently aimed at Jones' disinformation precursors. Doesn't Rush Limbaugh remind you of one of those gay guys who likes to lay in a tub while other men pee on him? So they're clearly very different people. But what's this I see? The internet disagrees. Do a quick search on YouTube and you'll find a seemingly endless series of videos arguing that in point of fact, Bill Hicks faked his death and became Alex Jones. On October 18th, 2014, we posted to our YouTube account a video titled Irrefutable Proof That Alex Jones Is Bill Hicks. The video Hi, attracted a lot of... I'm showing you a picture of Puddinhead Pumpkinhead Alex Jones, otherwise known as Bill Hicks. Now, there are a lot of people out there who will say, well, no, look at it. Bill Hicks, his nose is different than the nose of Alex Jones. It's not the same person, but they give a nose job when they make a personality and character change. They will kill off one character, bring that character back as another. Uh, so people give a lot of times the reason, no, the nose is different. It's not the same person. And they really don't believe they go to all this trouble uh, to create second personalities. But you're dealing with the CIA. You're dealing with Satanists. You're dealing with CIA propaganda agents. You know, uh, this character, Bill Hicks, was a propaganda agent as a comedian. And Alex Jones is still a comedian. And he's a propaganda agent. For whatever reason, I guess they just can't believe that um, the CIA and our government can't turn one person into another person one famous person into another famous person. You can kind of look at Bill Hicks and then compare him to the current Alex Jones. There's a couple clips in particular that I think are very telling. And I also want to premise this... Uh, now, video. this is hardly the only dead celebrity didn't die but actually became a totally different current day celebrity conspiracy that's online. Our current favorite is the suggestion that late period booze-bloated Lizard King Jim Morrison faked his death to become the aforementioned significantly more bloated Rush Limbaugh. But while the two men do bear more than a passing resemblance to each other, and Hicks did have a tendency to be a bit too credulous of conspiracy thinking, this is too silly to spend any more time on. Instead, let's turn our attention to Jones' most recent exploits. In the run-up to the 2016 election, it suddenly emerged that then-candidate Trump didn't get his information exclusively from Fox News, as was previously assumed. He was also a devotee of InfoWars, and in fact, he very famously called in for a real mutual tongue-bath of an interview with AJ himself, as memorialized by this hagiographic InfoWars spot. Nice guy. I know now from top people that you actually are for real, and you understand you're in danger, and you understand what you're doing is epic. Your reputation's amazing. I will not let you down. You will be very, very uh, impressed, I hope. And I think we'll be... A few months after Trump won, Megyn Kelly announced that she would be interviewing Jones. Many were concerned that this would give Jones and his lunacy too much credence. Fortunately, though, Kelly did a great job of holding his feet to the fire, especially with regard to his disgusting behavior on Sandy Hook. The whole thing is a giant hoax. How do you deal with a total hoax? It took me about a year with Sandy Hook to come to grips with the fact that the whole thing was fake. I did deep research, and my gosh, it just pretty much didn't happen. At, at that point, and I do think there's some cover-up and some manipulation, that is pretty much what I believe. But then I was also going into devil's advocate, but then we know there's mass shootings and these things happen. So again... Well, you're trying to have it always. 
right? No, I'm not. If you wrongly went out there and said it was a hoax, that's wrong. But what I already answered your question was, listeners and, and other people are covering this. I didn't create that story. But Alex, the parents, one after the other, devastated. The dead bodies that the coroner autopsy. And they've blocked all that and they won't release any of it? That's, that's unprecedented? All even, of the parents even the decided reports. to come out and, and lie about their dead children? I didn't say what that. Ha what happened to the children? I will sit there on the air and look at every position and play devil's advocate. Was that devil's advocate? It, the whole thing is a giant hoax. Not that he's learned anything from his previous mistakes. Since Newtown, he's insisted that the Boston Marathon bombings were a false flag. No evidence of this. Uh, being a false flag is that they've covered up that and they lied about it in the press conference, the drill that's now been confirmed. It was in the Boston Globe that was covered in News 15. I went on the radio today, hours before this happened. It's on record, the 15th of April, and I said, I can see all the scripting with the TV shows, the movies, where it's the right wing patriots that are going to stage the terror, they're going to merge with Al Qaeda. Just about 30 minutes ago, it's like 425, show people the atomic clock, 425 Central. So at about four, they come out and say that it could be right-wing groups. Now look, here in is... In the beginning of the Boston bombing story, Alex Jones came out with a conspiracy theory, of course. So false flag operation, and the government was going to use this to blame the Tea Party. Now, it turns out there was a problem with that theory, because the government didn't say the Tea Party did it. In fact, they found two Muslim brothers who had done it. And Alex Jones went, well, of course they did. Why, of course? Looks like you were totally wrong. No, once they found out I was on to them, then they switched it into a double false flag and made them Muslim. And now they're going to come back and connect it to me so they can go back to the Tea Party angle. What? And then the lizard people take off their masks and they go, Whoa. And that the Charleston church shooting by a white supremacist was a false flag. But when it happens, it's huge news, and they can hype it, and then you can bet your bottom dollar. There will be other racist, crazy people that will go out and attack blacks now, and vice versa. Racist, crazy black people will go out and do the same thing. And we just barrel towards the summer with every historical analyst, financial analyst, cultural analyst saying this summer is going to be explosive, probably going to have a race war. Matt Drudge said we could see the fall of America. I, I really believe you do have an excellent observation is if that this is being enticed or this young man on a drug uh, was given instructions. It's amazing to me that he picked such a historical place, a, a site that would be endeared by African-Americans in order to go in and cause this carnage. That's right. He wasn't, uh, oh, That's a great point. He wasn't just trying to kill black people. He wanted to stir folks up or whoever advised him. I mean, does yes. anybody believe this yes. chili bowl haircut guy that looks like He's got a 70 IQ. I mean, he looks, I don't mean to be mean, he looks mentally disabled. He looks like Dumb and Dumber. Does anybody believe... There has been another hilarious twist in the form of Jones's divorce proceedings. He was trying to maintain custody of his children, which presented a bit of a dilemma. After all, the insane ranting that made him so popular among lunatics on the internet is also the kind of thing that might convince a judge that he's not a great parent which led to this amazing argument from Jones's lawyer. But now his own lawyer suggests Jones shouldn't be taken at his word. His comments came during Jones' custody battle over his kids. According to one report, attorney Randall Wilhite said Jones is playing a character on his radio show. 
that he's actually a performance artist. Of course, Jones knows where his bread is buttered, so he immediately claimed the lawyer's quotes were being taken out of context and that he's only a performance artist when he wears a lizard mask, a top hat, or Joker makeup. All of which he has actually done. Oh, and there's also a clip of him making himself a tinfoil hat on the air. Remember how, in our last episode, we fondly referred to Art Bell and his totally credulous acceptance of every conspiracy theory that comes his way? Well, Jones is like the nightmare version of that. Instead of spooky conversations and knowing asides, Jones screams, rants, and puts on a macho, tough guy show about how fucking pissed he is at his enemies, both real and imaginary. And as we've seen with Sandy Hook, his irresponsible nonsense influences people whose grip on reality is even more tenuous than his. These things just keep happening. For example, in 2016, we were all treated to yet another insane conspiracy. I'll let Stephen Colbert walk you through this one. Fake news of all is something called Pizzagate. People actually believe a conspiracy theory that Hillary Clinton and her former campaign manager, John Podesta, ran a child sex ring at a pizzeria in D.C. This is a lie. We all know the only people who are trapped in a pizza place are those robots at Chuck E. Cheese. I've seen Westworld. One day they're going to rise up and kill us all. Now, according to the folks with the spider eggs hatching in their brains, Clinton and Podesta have a series of smuggling tunnels that connect to the basement of this pizzeria. But police refuse to investigate the basement crime scene on the flimsy excuse that the pizzeria does not have a basement. That's how deep this goes. Ground level. So, so where did this conspiracy theory start? Apparently, some alt-right folks were combing through Clinton campaign emails hacked by Russia and published by WikiLeaks and noticed there seems to be more references to pizza and pizzerias than they had expected, which can only mean one thing, secret sex ring. Because over the weekend, this happened. Police say a 28-year-old gunman entered Comet Ping Pong and fired off an assault rifle. The shooter claims he was investigating the so-called Pizzagate story. Hmm. Didn't mention Alex. Maybe he skipped out on this one? No, of course he didn't. And the headline is, Pizzagate is real. Only question is, exactly what is it? But, but something with codes is going on. The weird satanic rituals and stuff like, we'll have the kids for your entertainment ages six, seven, and eight in the hot tub waiting, and Obama wants $60,000 plus worth of hot dogs, and they're getting delivered. And then you go to law enforcement sex code documents, they're using all the key codes. The codes for kids, the codes for men, the codes for women, the codes for black people, the codes for Latinos. You know, people want me to look into it. I may just have to take off a week and just only research this and actually go to where these places are and stuff. They go to these pizza places. There's like satanic art everywhere. There's, there's art of these people where they're shoving children into women's vaginas. I can't even say this stuff on air. I mean, you know. I'm very sad to have to bring you this news, but we knew it was going on from our sources. And... Now it's out in the open. We've, we've got the Clintons involved with hardcore Satanism, blood rituals, Alistair Crowley stuff. The WikiLeaks have released it. Google has had to authenticate it. WikiLeaks has come out and linked to sites that are reporting this is about child trafficking, Haitian children. 
as a father, as an American, I'm very ashamed right now in this country. And uh, we don't take any pleasure in the fact that this is going on. But this is the truth of what we've become. It does make you wonder, though, what would have happened if Alex had actually bothered to go and, quote, investigate Comet Pizza himself? So that sound you hear in the background is live audio I recorded in the summer of 2017 at the Comet Pizzeria. Once I confirmed that there was no basement, I searched for telltale signs of child slavery. There were children and their parents, but those children appeared to be eating their pizza willingly. Well, they were picking the vegetables off of it, but still. I spoke to a number of patrons and employees, several of whom were there when the deranged gunman showed up. None of them wanted to talk on tape, which I can understand. They don't want to draw any additional attention to this nonsense. They want to forget this happened and go on with their lives without further stirring the hornet's nest of crazy people. It was infuriating in these conversations, realizing that assholes like Jones can reach out across the internet and send deranged acolytes crashing into regular people's everyday lives. Fortunately, this incident was egregious enough that, under threat of potential lawsuit, Alex even had to apologize. He made. In our commentary about what had become known as Pizzagate, I made comments about Mr. Alifanis that in hindsight, I regret and for which I apologize to him. To my knowledge today, neither Mr. Alifanis nor his restaurant, Comic Ping Pong, were involved in any human trafficking as was part of the theories about Pizzagate that were being written about in the media outlets and which we commented upon. I want our viewers and listeners. But did he learn anything? Now, while we were in production for this episode, two other horrific shootings in America turned out also, according to Jones, to be false flags. Both of these theories are still percolating, but according to Jones and Co., one likely scenario for Vegas is that the evil globalists actually did the shooting from helicopters. You would see a, a just right in between those towers. Corridor. These helicopters literally came to a hover at 10 till the hour right in that sliver, and then their transponders went dark. Oh! Now, <laughs> coincidentally, uh, the shooting, I've checked into this, I've I've uh, grabbed video. I mean, I, I, people, I have over 400 hours, uh, n- maybe near 500 hours into this uh, shooting investigation already. By the way, that's why you're here. You've been the most prolific. You've broken <clears throat> so much of it, and it just goes on and on. On Saturday night, Monday morning, Sunday morning, They released O.J. just 20 hours before the attack took place so all the media would come and be in place to cover this event. The whole thing has the hallmarks of being scripted by deep state Democrats and their Islamic allies using mental patient cutouts. I'm Alex Jones. Oh, and the Sutherland, Texas church shooting? He's all over that one as well. Patrick Kelly was allowed to assault his wife and his stepchild and break their bones. Then when he attacked or tried to attack with firearms, the chain of command at a Air Force base, he was sent to a mental institution. And he then was allowed to flee, not have an APB put out for him. And they never filed the paperwork that he had a dishonorable discharge so he could get firearms. Look at that weak-minded creature. He's got MK Ultra. MK Naomi, 
Monarch program, you name it, written all over. And those are just declassified mind control programs. And of course, the same sorts of threats and condemnation are raining down on the heads of innocent survivors of Vegas that we saw with previous tragedies where Jones stuck his beacon. One guy, Braden Majetka, who was shot in the fucking head by that lunatic who opened fire from the Mandalay Bay Casino, has been receiving death threats from nonsense-spouting assholes who accuse him of being part of the conspiracy. You know, sometimes in real life, when someone finds out that I spend all of my free time working on this show, they ask me why. What's the point? People are just going to believe what they want to believe. But so long as someone as pernicious, malevolent, irresponsible, and crazy as Jones wields influence over millions of viewers, including the current president of the United States, we think it's well worth our time to oppose the spread of his paranoid strain. This has been The Paranoid Strain. Follow us on Twitter at Paranoid Strain, email us at theparanoidstrain at gmail.com, and visit us on the web at theparanoidstrain.com. Special thanks to our interviewee, whatever I pretended his name was, as well as our first two-time interviewee, LG Sweet. As always, we're grateful for the musical stylings of Daniel Arizona and the Paranoid Strain Orchestra, and indebted to the dulcet Northern European interjections of Miss Dana Unicorn. Final mixing assistance comes from Big Mucho, who also put together our super-duper website, and Willem UFO makes the pretty pictures. I'm Fearful Jesuit. Thanks for listening. Next episode, we take on the biggest imagined false flag conspiracy theory of all time. In the meantime, remember, the world is chaotic, but it's not out to get you. Or at least, not you specifically. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.